So I have a really cool report. Uh, we get to join Jesus in his restoration work both near and far. And right here in the five cities and across the world uh, in si southern Ethiopia. And so our church budget matches your change for a dollar offering with gifts to LifeWater International. And I'm excited to announce last week we had an anonymous donation to double last week's LifeWater contribution, which means that we were able to give nearly $1,000 to bring safe water, improve health, and the hope of the gospel to the 25 families in Tutitsha, Ethiopia. Woo! We are definitely living in a thirsty world. My theological mentor, uh, N.T. Wright, writes a parable of a hidden spring in his second chapter of the book, Simply Christian. There was once a powerful dictator who ruled his country with an iron will. Every aspect of life was thought through and worked out according to a rational system. Nothing was left to chance. The dictator noticed that the water sources around the country were erratic and in some cases dangerous. There were thousands of springs of water, often in the middle of towns and cities. They could be useful, but sometimes they caused, caused floods. Sometimes they got polluted, and often they burst out in new places and damaged roads, fields, and houses. The dictator decided on a sensible, rational policy. The whole country, at least every part where there was any suggestion of water, would be paved over with concrete so thick that the spring of water could never penetrate it. The water that people needed would be brought to them by a complex system of pipes. Furthermore, the dictator decided he would use the opportunity while he was at it to put into the water various chemicals that would make the people healthy. With the dictator controlling the supply, everyone would have what they decided they needed and what he decided they needed, and there wouldn't be any more nuisance from unregulated springs. For many years, the plan worked just fine. People got used to their water coming from the new system. It sometimes tasted a bit strange, and from time to time, they would look back wistfully to the bubbling springs and fresh springs they used to enjoy. Some of the problems that people had formerly blamed on un unregulated water hadn't gone away. However, it turned out that the air was just as polluted as the water and had sometimes been but the dictator couldn't or didn't do much about that. But mostly the new system seemed efficient. People praised the dictator for his forward-looking wisdom. A generation passed. All seemed to be well. And then, without warning, the springs that had gone on bubbling and sparkling, sparkling beneath the solid concrete could no longer be contained. In a sudden explosion, a cross between a volcano and an earthquake, they burst through the concrete that people had come to take for granted. Muddy, dirty water shot into the air and rushed through the streets and into the houses, shops, and factories. Roads were torn up. Whole cities were in chaos. Some people were delighted. At last, they could get water again without depending on the system. But the people who ran the official water pipes were at a loss. Suddenly, everyone had more than enough water, but it wasn't pure and couldn't be controlled. We in the Western world are the citizens of that country. The dictator is the secular philosophy that's shaped our world over the past two or three centuries, making most people materialists by default. And the water 
is what we today call spirituality, the hidden spring that bubbles up within human hearts and human societies. You see, the citizens of that long tyranny of concrete were left with a deep, deep thirst that has caused them to be willing to drink from any spring, no matter what the quality of the water. Are you with me? Following this parable? Enter Jesus Christ, who calls out to a thirsty world, if you only knew the gift of God and who I am, you would ask me for living water. We're going to look today at how Jesus brings living water to a thirsty world in John chapter 4. John 4, 1 to 3 says, Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Though Jesus didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. In other words, Jesus didn't want there to be some sort of perceived competition. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave his son, Joseph. Actually, he didn't have to go through Samaria. The normal Jewish route northward was to go down to the Jordan River Valley and then follow the west bank up towards Galilee, bypassing Samaria. The Jews of Jesus' day made every effort to avoid contact with the Samaritans because of a long social, cultural, and religious hostility between the two groups. However, Jesus did have to go through Samaria because he was led by the Spirit to meet someone there. The Spirit often leads us, I've found, to places and persons that would be very easy socially and culturally to bypass. Can you relate? I think about both stories that we just heard. It would be so easy to bypass the lives of those women and the lives of those people that were blessed by Summer's gift. Several years ago, I went to visit. I'm not going to tell that story yet. It's a beautiful story. I'm going to wait. Let's see how Jesus uh, brings hope to this thirsty woman's life. Here's a map of where Sychar, the location, is really ancient Shechem. It's an ancient city between two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. They're two 3,000-foot peaks, and, and Shechem's right in the middle where Sychar is. And it was on these mountains that the blessings and curses of the covenant were proclaimed according to the book of Deuteronomy. Mount Gerizim was the location of the temple of the Samaritans, which they built in the 4th century BC as an alternative to the temple in Jerusalem. And this was a point of extreme controversy between the Jews and the Samaritans. This is also the location of modern-day Nablus, a Palestinian commercial and cultural center in the occupied West Bank. 30 miles north of Jerusalem. Sadly, this continues to be a flashpoint of conflict, sparked by the reaction of Palestinian residents to the expansion of Jewish settlements in this region. This photo is from a news report from the area of Sychar last week. 
just wanted to bring you into the reality that the tension continues. Kathy and I got to go there uh, to Israel and Palestine last uh, two years ago. And there's a small band of Palestinian Christians and Jewish followers of Jesus who are risking it all, crossing cultural barriers to model reconciliation through Jesus Christ there. Isn't that beautiful? Please pray for that work of reconciliation. So John 4, 6, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well at about noontime. Now, I want to ask you a question. Is it possible to portray Jesus as too spiritual? I was looking at some artistic renderings of this uh, event in the, in the gospel. Here's one from the catacombs of Rome from Russia, an icon, from Spain. Then there's an Italian artist who portrays American artists. He's kind of the worst of all there. <laughs> that looks like what I could draw. A French artist. It's the best looking uh, Samaritan woman, by the way. Chinese artists, Italian artists. But in all of these, Jesus just looks so spiritual. My favorite is by Joseph Turner. It's hard to find this. It's a, it's a British uh, mid-19th mid century piece of art. And if you look really closely, let's zoom in in the next slide, Jesus is slouching, leaning on his legs like this, looking exhausted. You can kind of see it. Can you see it? He's just parched and exhausted. You see, John's gospel begins with a profound statement. In the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became what? Flesh. The Word became fully human and made His dwelling among us. The pre-existent Word. The one who spoke all creation into existence. Get this, my dear friends became a part of creation. He became the Jesus of history. The Lord of history entered history and took on our full humanity, or as Eugene Peterson translates, he moved into our neighborhood. Jesus has taken on our full humanity to be with this. Isn't this good news? He doesn't sort of walk along in a hyper-spiritual sort of elevated state but he enters into the human condition. Here at the well in Samaria, we see the fully human Jesus, weary and thirsty. And we see the fully human Jesus on mission. And he's on mission with a woman, an outcast woman, but he's on mission not from a position of power, but from a position of weakness. Could we use that today? In our whole power dynamic, in the Me Too movement, and all that that's raising up. Is, is what if we, as the church of Jesus Christ, approach the world not from a position of power, but from a position of weakness? That's a good place for an amen. <laughs> what if we, like Jesus, began engaging with our world by asking for help? It's a paradox. As I look at my greatest times of impact on lost people in my whole life, it's, it's been, there's one thing in common. 
It's been t- in times of desperate personal weakness that I've had the most impact on lost people for Christ. What is that? Can you relate? Yes. Amen. All right. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, would you draw water and give me a drink? Now, you guys today are the Samaritan woman. That means you read her part. So please read. I cannot Jews, you see, have no dealing with the Samaritans. And so what, like many conflicts in the Middle East, let me give you a little bit of, let me nerd out for a moment on history, okay? This animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans, like many other conflicts in the world today, had deep historic roots. The division began in 930 BC when the tribes of Israel divided into the southern and northern kingdoms. As a result of the northern kingdom's persistence, idolatry, and injustice, God gave them over to Assyria in Assyria's judgment in 722 BC. But Assyria it was, it was a, a terrorist nation, and the way they, they defeated nations was brutal. They would literally force migration of the people in the conquered area and mix the races and bring in people from other parts and completely destroy the racial integrity of that people. And so the people in northern Israel were racially and religiously mixed because they would also take the religions of the eastern peoples and and force them on them also. And so the Samaritans were seen as impure in the eyes of the Jews of southern Judah. They were a mixed people with mixed beliefs. Hostilities were magnified as they chose to build their own temple. I can't tell you how audacious that is. Right on that mountain above where Jesus and the woman are talking, the Mount Mount, uh, Gerizim. Hostilities continued when the Samaritans sided with the Romans against the Jews in a dispute in the first century. Can you see the bitterness that is here? So when Jesus chooses to talk with a Samaritan woman, he's crossing multiple barriers. Think about it. Number one, he's crossing a cultural and religious barrier. She was impure religiously, and he was a pure Jew from Judea. Jesus crossed a gender barrier. Jewish males, especially rabbis and teachers, were to avoid any unnecessary conversation with women. What do you think about that? Among the six activities unbecoming of a scholar was to talk to a woman. I know. I think it's one of the six top activities becoming of a scholar is to talk to a woman. Even today, in traditional Middle Eastern societies, social intercourse between unrelated men and women is almost equivalent to sexual intercourse. Even worse was contact with a Samaritan woman who were considered totally unclean. Jesus crossed a moral barrier. With five husbands and living with a sixth man, she was seen as a, a promiscuous woman. Jesus risked a whole lot to have a conversation with her. Are you with me? 
He crossed ethnic, religious, gender, and moral barriers to have a conversation with this Samaritan woman. This is really good news. The Lord Jesus continues to cross any and every barrier to bring us to the living water. And I just think if we could just tell our stories, if I could tell you my story, I would say I was so grateful he kept pushing through my barriers when I was fighting him. And he, he just relentlessly, with his holy love, crossed those barriers and crossed those barriers and blew up those little boxes I created for my own security and identity and purpose. And, and he kept pursuing me like he kept pursuing you. Isn't that good news that we have a God who crosses barriers? This is the gospel, friends. And this is what's really exciting. Jesus invites us to join him in crossing those barriers for the sake of the gospel. Later in John, Jesus prayed to the Father in his great prayer, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them. In other words, Jesus' mission in the world is the pattern for our mission in the world. So I invite you to pray every morning, Jesus, where's my Samaria? Today. That place where, or a person that would be really easy to bypass, where you have a divine appointment. Amen? It's a powerful prayer. Be ready for him to answer. Back to our text, John 4.10. You do not know the gift of God, or who is asking you for a drink of this water from Jacob's well. Because if you did, you would have asked him for something greater, and he would have given you living water, you guys are the woman. Sir, are you claiming? Go ahead. I can. I can just see her sitting there. Or standing there above the well, are you, who are you to claim this? And Jesus, in his amazingly uh, mysterious response, says, Drink this water, and your thirst is quenched only for a moment. You must return to this well again and again, but I offer water that will be a wellspring within you that gives life throughout eternity. You will never thirst again. So follow the flow of this conversation. It seems Jesus is, has really no problem with being misunderstood. So weary, thirsty Jesus approaches the woman and says, please give me a drink. The woman says, why do you, a Jewish male, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Jesus says, if you knew who I am, you would ask me for living water. You just put yourself in her place. The woman says, where are you going to get this living water? There were no streams in that part of Israel. Jesus said, drink the water I offer and you will never thirst again. This reminds me of the conversation in chapter 3 with Nicodemus, where he comes to Jesus and says, you know, you're a good man. No one could be a good man like you unless he 
you know, was a good man. And, and, and Jesus says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus goes, <laughs> and Jesus is talking about new birth, and he's talking about physical, going back into his mother's uterus, and they're on these two different, they're just on these two tracks. And can you see right now the woman and Jesus are on these two different tracks? She's thinking about this water and your audacity to talk about living water, and he's talking about the, you know, he doesn't seem to be worried about that. Maybe you're in one of those with him right now. We all have our wells, don't we? Back to that concrete kingdom. Wells that quench our thirst for a moment, wells that require more and more to satisfy. I think about accomplishment as a well, approval as a well. It's relentless. It gives you a, just a short-term quench, and, but it just demands more and more. It's almost like the well itself is thirsty. Approval, entertainment, just one more Netflix series. <laughs> it's just never satisfied. Relationships, money, more stuff, the latest gadgets, travel, alcohol, drugs, being liked on social media. I don't know. It's just these wells are relentless, aren't they? Because they only quench for a short amount of time. And like Jesus says, they, they demand that we keep coming back. And so the woman's hearing Jesus talk about this living water, and she says, And then Jesus just throws yet another major curve her way out of nowhere. Then bring your husband to me. And I translate this as um, uh, <clears throat> um, I do not have a husband. And Jesus says, Well, technically, you are telling the truth. And I think he said this with a glean in his eye and compassion in his face. But you've had five husbands, and you are currently living with a man you're not married to. You're really right. Didn't say anything else. Why do you think Jesus brings up her relationship history at this very point in the conversation? <laughs> Who said, say it again. That's her well. Thank you. We cannot experience Jesus' living water while drinking from our own polluted wells. There's got to be an exchange. Remember John 1.14 said, The Word became flesh, full of grace and truth. Notice in every conversation Jesus has how grace and truth are so wrapped up together. I, I, I feel like in our Christian world today, there's the truth Christians and the grace Christians you know, the truth churches and the grace churches, and Jesus just wraps up grace and truth so intimately. You can't tell the difference between both. He treats her with such dignity. He affirms her telling the truth while exposing the whole truth without condemning or shaming her. Later in John, Jesus says, the truth will set you free. 
Like a skillful surgeon, Jesus speaks the truth about our condition, about our broken wells, about our polluted wells. He identifies our disease like a skilled surgeon in order to heal it. The truth, facing the truth about your broken wells, is the journey to healing. Step one in the 12 steps, I've come to realize my life is what? Unmanageable. In other words, I've come to realize I have a broken well, and it's breaking my life. So the woman's response is, Now stop. I think she's racing in her mind and going, how can I change the subject here? <laughs> Go ahead. So, listen. Some scholars think she's actually seriously curious about a worship debate. But I think this is a diversion. Because I know myself. At different times in my life, particularly when I want my way rather than God's way, I've found diversion a very useful tactic. Why deal with real conviction and repentance when you can avoid issues by being intellectual and talking theology or denominations and just kind of living up here, having Bible conversations? Could it be that we sometimes use the Bible to avoid God? Could it be that sometimes we use religion to avoid God? It's a very helpful deflector. I believe the most subtle form of spiritual deflection is spirituality itself. It's possible for us to use our own spirituality, our own religion, our own church tradition as ways to avoid God himself and his claims on our lives. That's what makes it so demonic sometimes. For this reason, God has constantly sent his prophets to his people because his prophets always see through that foil. And one of my favorite passages from the book of uh, Jeremiah is this, where the Lord says, my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water. Is that a diagnosis of the human condition, friends? That's it. So we can try to avoid the claims of Christ, but Jesus will not be deterred. He's relentless in his holy love. Can you say amen? He keeps pushing through our barriers, and we see that he's persisting with this woman who's trying to deflect. He says, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship. That's a bold statement, Jesus. While we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is looking, he's on the hunt for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Wow. Now he's talking about worship. We went from water to worship. 
My really good friend and colleague from Ventura, Dr. Mark Patterson, went to King's College London to get a PhD in theology, and his focus was on why revivals go wrong. His conclusion is that we humans, we Christians, throughout history often reduce the mysterious and wonderful work of God's Spirit to a place, a personality, or a practice. We hijack the mysterious and beautiful and wonderful work of the Spirit with this idea, if you just go to Toronto or to that town in Northern California or wherever, then you will. Or if you just follow this personality and go to one of his seminars, then you will experience. Or if you just imitate this formula, you can get God to, and then we go and have seminars about that new formula. And as we do that, we hijack the beautiful, wonderful work of God's Spirit. I thought that was a profound discovery. These are all attempts to manage God. This is one reason why I so love the historic Christian doctrine of the Trinity, because he's so unmanageable. We can't even describe him. I love it. In this doctrine, affirmed in all the great creeds, Christians of all traditions across the world and down through history have affirmed that God has revealed himself as one, and then at the same time, three interdependent, fully in love persons. The Father, say it with me, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he cannot be reduced to the boxes we create for him. Listen again to Jesus. Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem, in this place, this worship style, this formula, led by this personality. I, those are my words. But the time is coming, indeed, it's here now, when true worships, worshipers will worship him, the Father in spirit and truth, in the Holy Spirit and the truth, who is Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. Note how Jesus sees the whole Trinity involved in our worship. This is why we gather every Sunday, friends. We gather not to see a performance or be entertained, but we gather to engage the holy, unmanageable, gracious presence of God who is a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and He's swirling around to restore His creation. That's why we gather. Can you say amen? And it's in that Trinitarian love that we drink deeply of living water. That's where it is. It's not in a formula, in a person. Dale Bruner writes in his commentary on John, by the God the Spirit going down deep into human hearts, moving them upward in faith to focus on the living truth who is Jesus, God the Son, who then in tandem with the Spirit brings us spiritually upward more and more to the heart's goal, which is God the Father. You see how the whole Trinity is involved in every act of worship. It's a beautiful thing. And that's where our, our thirst is quenched, in the presence of this triune God. So the woman responds, Easy. 
And then Jesus makes the climactic statement. The anointed one is speaking to you. I am the one you've been looking for. Literally in the Greek, it's I am the one speaking to you. This is the most important moment in this conversation. We, we meet the whole mystery of God in the person of Jesus. I'll say that again. We meet the whole mystery of God in the face and the person of Jesus. This is a beautiful theme in the Gospel of John, the I am's of Jesus. Jesus multiplies the loaves, and then he says, I am the what of life? I'm the bread of life. He heals the blind man, and he says, I am the light of the world. He says, I'm the gate of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. He raises Lazarus and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. In 14.6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In 15, one of my favorite, I just read it in my Bible in one year yesterday. I am the vine and you are the branches. And most brazenly in John 8.58, he says to his critics, before Abraham was, I am. He didn't say I was, he says I am. And that's when they picked up stones. Because they knew he was claiming to be the Lord of the burning bush in Exodus 3, Yahweh. C.S. Lewis, my favorite quote by Lewis in Mere Christianity is this. And it's so relevant to our culture today. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about, them, about him. I'm really ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. But a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. John 4 Meanwhile, back at the well, the clueless disciples who have been out, you know, they've gone to uh, the sandwich shop in town and they return. They've missed this whole amazing conversation. And it says they gather around him in amazement that he would openly break their customs by speaking to this woman. But none of them would ask him what he was looking for or why he was speaking to her. The woman went back to the town, get this, leaving her water pot. Isn't that an irony? The whole focus, what she was on, on her level, was on this physical water, and she ends up leaving the water pot there. I think it's uh, John, the writer, is giving us some humor there. She left her water pot behind. She stopped men and women in, on the streets of her village and told them about what had happened. I met a stranger who knew everything about me. Come and see for yourself. Can he be the anointed one? This thirsty outcast is now become a bubbling spring. Isn't that cool? And now she's doing the same thing that the disciples who met Jesus in John 1 did. Andrew and Philip. Remember what they did is they brought their neighbors. And they said, come and see. She's doing the same thing. She's become the first missionary to the Samaritan people. And her impact, her story is so powerful that at the end of this narrative, they say to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves. Jesus visited them. They begged him. 
and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Whoa, not just the Savior of the Jews. He's the Savior of the world in that Samaritan village, got it. And so how do we become a bubbling spring? How do we turn from being a thirsty outcast to a bubbling spring? I want to leave you with just four. I saw these four realities. It's part of a journey that we see her on. And the first one is just that old-fashioned word of repentance. It's, it, it's we can't become a bubbling spring while we're drinking from our own polluted wells. Right? And so we've got to face reality about those wells that we're drinking from. And then we got to ask ourselves, how's that working for me? How's that working for me? That's what repentance is, is, is identifying and turning from our polluted wells. And then faith, we turn from bad out, good in. We turn and we discover who Jesus is, his radical claims. He's just anything but just a good moral teacher. His I am's. We, we wrestle with his identity and then we turn to him in committed trust. That's the second step towards becoming a bubbling spring. And then we receive the Holy Spirit. This whole passage in John 4 is really about the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, the living water. The living water is the third person of the Trinity. Amen? And he comes into our lives and into his church and then he wants to spill out and the last step is telling others, spilling on other people, and saying, come and see. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would turn thirsty outcasts across these five cities into bubbling springs. That your church would be just like a beautiful well of living water all across this county and that we would be a part of that beautiful spring and that as we come together to celebrate your triune holy immense loving presence that we would drink deeply and then go out and spill all over thirsty people in a world that's been covered over with concrete help us to point them to the living water we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen.